morning. Welcome again to One Life Community Church. You've heard it a few times this morning, uh, but again, it's a delight to be with you. Uh, it is a, a pleasure and a privilege to be uh, with you. My name is Brian. I'm the worship and arts director, uh, and it is uh, it's fun to be with you, to worship with you in a different capacity. A different as we move into this portion of our time of worship, we've got, uh, you know, some new bulletins, you've got some blank spaces for you to process, to take notes, uh, to write out thoughts, to react, to draw, do whatever is helpful for you uh, as we go uh, the next portion of our, our time together. Get into that, right? God be with us this morning, awaken us. Help us to see you more clearly. You, you're about. You call us. So, we are in our fifth week of our sermon series in the book of Mark. We are deep in the throes of this gospel. Rich, a few weeks ago, introduced us to this series of look at Jesus' call of his disciples. The realization that we're not able to walk through this life on our own, and that the invitation to the disciples is an invitation to us as well, an invitation to follow Jesus. Then Greg took us into the story of Jesus casting demons out of a man and into some pigs and asked us whether we will live and move in Jesus, to step into the dark places free of fear so that we can be light. Then Rich looked with us at Jesus getting away to a solitary place to pray and extended the invitation to us to recognize the importance and necessity of prayer. And he invited us to prioritize prayer, to find places and times where we can pray, engage, or listen to and speak with God. And last week, Ben challenged us to remember the mystery of God, to remember to wrestle with and to engage with God as we work through what it is to follow Jesus. That maybe faith is the actual engagement. Now, our text this week is a pretty important one. In the narrative of the gospel, it's a major turning point in the flow of the story of all three of the synoptic gospels. And we'll come back to this later on, but for now, let's read the text. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along there. It'll be behind me on the screen. Uh, our text is Mark 9, 2 through 13. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. He was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could reach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, but they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them. From the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what those rising from the dead could mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. 
how then is it written about the Son of Man that he is to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written about This is the word of the Lord. At this point, we've heard a bit of the sort of the social and historical location of Mark. We've gone through this series kind of talking about where Mark was written, who was written to, who was written by, uh, that is the earliest of the four Gospels, that is the shortest of the four Gospels, uh, that is probably the primary source for Matthew and Luke, uh, that it was attributed to John Mark, who's friends with both Peter and Paul, and that Peter's probably the primary source for all these stories, and that it's fast-paced and moving quickly from story to story, using the word immediately, a lot, a lot. Um, often viewing events from 30,000 feet and then zooming in up close to see the human reactions and responses to Jesus. And all of these things come into play as we look at this particular story, especially in regards to But again, we'll return to that. The story is pretty commonly called the Transfiguration, uh, and it appears in all three synoptic Gospels. We've talked about this in past sermons in this series as well, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, meaning that they all sort of talk about the same events with similar wording, with similar forms, uh, whereas the Gospel of John is distinct. And in all three of the synoptic Gospels, in all three of the accounts of Jesus, the Transfiguration story acts as a hint in the narrative, a turning point in the story and in Jesus' life. This is the case of Matthew, Mark, and but we're focusing on the Mark's text. Mark text is obviously a story. So a hint. Uh, the story functions as a turning point in the gospel narrative. For eight chapters now, we have watched Jesus rapidly, place to place, performing miracles, raising people from the dead, casting out demons, healing, and so on. We've watched Jesus conquer all kinds of enemies. Demons, sickness, even death itself. We've talked a bit about the social and cultural context of the gospel, uh, that it was written to Jewish people kind of all over the place. Um, but the textual context is supremely important as well, like where it falls in the story matters. Because the Bible is not meant to be read by picking and choosing verses to apply to our lives. We lose something really significant when we read stories or segments of letters divorced from their larger context within the entire book, within the trajectory of the scriptures. All that is to say, it's important to acknowledge what is happening before and after our text. So in chapter 8, right before they go up on the mountaintop, we see Jesus talking a bit about his teachings, and then heals a blind dude. Uh, then we have a brief conversation where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, to which Jesus responds that he's going to suffer and die. Okay. And then Peter doesn't like that and tries to correct Jesus, so Jesus calls him Satan. <laughs> and then talks about the cost of following him. And it's here, in this talk of suffering and death, of the cost of following Jesus to the cross, that we find our text. So quick recap. After all that stuff we just talked about, Jesus picks Peter, James, and John and goes up to a mountain. On the mountaintop, Elijah and Moses appear and start talking to Jesus, who, by the way, was now glowing super bright. Peter suggests building some tents, because this is all super weird and somebody should say something, right? <laughs> Then a cloud appears around them, and the voice says, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Then Elijah and Moses disappear, and they head down the mountain. And on the way down, the three disciples asked Jesus some questions about what they'd heard and how Scripture fits it and where all of their expectations of the Messiah fit into this. It's those expectations that are at the heart of the story. 
Earlier on in our series, we hear that the disciples in Mark are presented as somewhat obtuse, kind of lowest common denominator types. Uh, Rich, in the introduction to the series, described them, or quoted a commentator who described them as comic relief, characterized as severely dense. Uh, They're kind of caricatures, exaggerations, designed to act as foils against Jesus and all that the gospel's trying to say about him. And in our first pass of the story, it kind of seems like Peter's playing right into that paradigm of being awkward and not really clued into what's going on, right? One preacher that I've heard speak on this passage a few times, and it's perilous, likes to refer to Peter as kind of a doofus who is always sticking his foot in his mouth and continues to do so here. And Peter sees Jesus glowing bright white, talking to Moses and Elijah, and so he suggests they build some tents. That seems like a pretty silly thing to say, right? And, like, the text gives some credit to that as well. It says that he didn't know what to say because they were terrified. And that's true. But I want to argue that Peter didn't just blurt out some random thing that came to mind. Like, he didn't, like, look at them and be like, this is really weird, and then be like, uh, let's build some tents. That's <laughs> not, not quite how it happened. As always the case, there's something going on behind the surface here. There's a thing behind the thing. Uh, see, if Mark was written to Jewish people, whether we're in Israel or scattered around the Mediterranean, there's a whole pile of history and mythology and prophecy and expectation and hope to take into account. This is a bit of an info dump, and it's fairly abbreviated, but it's important to understand what's going on, so bear with me. Uh, first thing, if you can name one overarching narrative in the Bible, one story that sort of captures the trajectory of the rest of the scriptures, what would it be? Say that again? Love. Creation. There you go, delivery from slavery. Redemption. Uh, for the Jewish people, for the primary readers of the scriptures in their original context, one of the overarching stories, the driving narrative, is the story of the Exodus. Of God rescuing an oppressed people group from slavery in Egypt and bringing them into a place where they could live as God's people. That story, that narrative, lies beneath the entire Old Testament and has been bored into the hearts and minds of these people. It is ingrained into their being. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home, when you're away, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Know this story. Not just the rules and the regulations of the law, but the story. Know the story. Keep it in your minds. Build it into your daily lives. Know who you are. This story is so important to the lives of the people that it was built into their communal life. The working out of interpreting the scriptures and tradition led to established feast days and festivals. Events like Passover, which happened just a few weeks ago and which coincides with Jesus' death and resurrection. It's very similar to the church calendar that we follow uh, here and that huge portions of the church around the world follow. Uh, The calendar is a year-long retelling of the story of Jesus and the church, starting at Advent with the anticipated birth of Jesus through his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension through Pentecost and into the season of ordinary time. Both the church calendar and the Jewish festival cycle that Jesus followed are ways that God's people, that we wear God's word in our hearts and on our bodies. 
And in the Jewish festival calendar, there are seven, seven major festivals that happen throughout the year. Three happen early on during the planting season and three during the harvest. And then after the harvest, at the end of the year, is the festival of Sukkot, the festival of tabernacles. Uh, it's a celebration of thanksgiving for all that God has done and God has provided throughout the year uh, and a remembrance of God's going with him into the wilderness towards the promised land. It's, and a staple of this week-long feast, of, of week feast of tabernacles is tents. Uh, as part of the celebration, people would set up tents outside the city walls and live in them as a way of remembering the time that their ancestors spent in the wilderness with God in the tabernacle in the middle. But what does this have to do with Jesus and Peter and the transfiguration? Well, I want to argue that Peter wasn't just blurting out randomness because he felt like he had to say something. I think we sometimes over-obtusify Peter uh, and read this as he's just saying something. <laughs> but remember that Peter is at the very least a nominal Jew. He's familiar with the stories and the feasts. He knows where he came from and believed that what he was seeing now is a continuation of that story. Picture this with me. I'm going to preface this by acknowledging that this, is, uh, this could be potentially difficult and intense for some of us uh, because some of us can relate to this more than others can. Uh, imagine that your cultural story is one where you have lived under oppression. Part of your cultural memory is the story of God rescuing your people from another oppressive ruler with the promise that one day it'll be fulfilled. Imagine that every year celebrating how God has provided and asking for God to provide for the future. And then imagine the guy that you've been following, the one who has been calling himself, the one who God has sent to fulfill this promise of rescue, takes you up on the mountain. And there you see Moses and Elijah, who, by the way, had both had pretty significant moments on top of mountains. Uh, and then they all start glowing. <laughs> and you get the idea. Peter's reaction is rooted in these stories. And even though he feels like he has to say something, it's not just anything. He's a very specific image in his mind and very specific hopes. And he's excited and nervous to see what might actually be happening. And he just wants to stay. This past summer, my wife Amy and I and our daughter Audrey spent 10 days traveling around Iceland. Uh, we spent a few days in Reykjavik, and then we headed up a loop called the Golden Circle, and then out along the south coast. And that country is wild. It's peaceful and beautiful and wild, and the weather can be absolutely terrible, and it's a giant volcano, and it's, in the wintertime it's dark like 22 hours a day, and it's breathtaking. Like if all the places in fantasy stories were real but not quite at the same time. It was magical. As we got to the end of our trip, we found ourselves struggling with the idea of going home, of re-entering our normal lives. And even now, nine months later, that trip, that place holds a special significance for me, whether I could fully verbalize it or not. Some corners of the church have this term, thin places. Uh, places where the divine and natural worlds intersect a little more closely. And I think for me, I found that Iceland was a thin place. Are you with me? Is this idea of thin places, of sacred moments, where something deep within our souls resonates with us so much that we just want to stay? I think this is what hap what's happening for Peter here. He's got all these messianic hopes. He's got this, this hope that God would finally rescue them, that God, God's final rescue would involve this Messiah, this, this uh this one who's going to deliver them and go ahead and establish God's kingdom. 
And he has this crazy experience on the top of a mountain where it looks like this promise might finally be coming true. And he sees Jesus affirmed as the Messiah, as the Holy One, and he just wants to stay there. He thinks this is it. This is the moment where all of God's promises come to fruition. It's a sacred moment, a thin place. Let's build tents so we can stay here with God in the midst of us, just like it was and will be. Let's stay on the mountain and forget about what's going on down there in the day-to-day world. This idea has often been a temptation for myself and something that I suspect is pretty common for us. We want to stay in these holy places rather than go back down the mountain. We'd rather find a way to maintain the feelings that come with being in these unique and highly spiritualized moments rather than figuring out how to walk with Jesus back down on the ground. I think in our story, Peter wanted to stay up there. And he suggested what he knew to try and stay in that moment, in that holy place. But those moments are not meant for longevity. Those moments are glimpses, but they're not meant to last. See, as soon as Peter opens his mouth, a cloud covers everything. And God says, listen to my son. And then it's over. Jesus isn't glowing. Moses and Elijah are gone. It's time to go back down. Which is a challenging thing, right? For many of us, remaining remaining present in our day-to-day and actively moving forward towards something that looks like hope is really hard. Up to this point, we focus pretty heavily on Peter. And there's some meaningful things to hear in Peter's role in this story. But ultimately, the central character and the main focus is Jesus. And like we said earlier, this story is a hinge point in the Gospels, a shift away from his public ministry and towards Jerusalem, towards his death and resurrection. Generally, the sort of like scholarly consensus is that despite this passage traditionally being called the transfiguration, uh, it's not really a helpful or accurate word for what happens. Uh, Transfiguration implies like metamorphosis, a changing from one thing to something completely different. Uh, But what's really happening here is a revelation, a revealing, and an affirmation. Jesus isn't changed into something new. Who he is, who his true identity is, is revealed and affirmed both his divinity and his humanity. And in that moment, out of this cloud, which is a very common way that God appeared in the Old Testament, uh, we hear God's affirmation that Jesus is very much indeed God's son and that we're to listen to and to follow him. But follow him where? This section, this mountaintop moment, is bookended by Jesus talking about suffering and death, about what he has to do, about the cost of following him. Because there is a cost. We see at the end of chapter 8, just before they go up on the mountain, Jesus tells his disciples that following him carries a cost. Mark 8.34-9.1 says, He called the crowd of his disciples and said to them, If anybody wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, 
I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. There is a cost to following Jesus. And as much as that, I would love to dig into that text more, that's like a sermon for another day or longer than that. <laughs> uh, I bring this up because Jesus straight up says there's a cost to following him. Following him is hard. Because if we're really serious about following Jesus, we need to remember that that path is one that leads to the cross. There are many ways that we talk about what exactly happened when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, and they're all valid and yet incomplete images. There's the idea that Jesus conquered evil and death, or that he ransomed humanity, or that he was scapegoated as a way to assuage the violence of our sins, or that he's a moral exemplar showing us the way to live, or that he took the penalty of our sins so that we could be in communion with God, and so on. And there are numerous ways that we've talked about that moment, and they're all helpful and insufficient at the same time because they are images. They say, in this event of Jesus dying and resurrecting, it's kind of like this. And a really helpful image that we don't talk about often is this idea that when Jesus went to the cross, when he suffered and died, it was God's way of saying, I'm here with you. I have suffered and felt pain as well. The cross is God being with us, even in the darkest of times. Let's face it, life is hard. It is painful and scary and glorious and wonderful and overwhelming and life-giving and heartbreaking all at the same time. And what we see here, this image of Jesus walking down the mountain with Peter, James, and John, that's God with us, walking with us into our pain. The mountaintop experience that they just had, being literally enveloped in God so much that Jesus glowed, that blew their minds. They thought that that was it, that God's work was done and they would get to live in the presence of God forever. But it wasn't. They had to go back down the mountain. And if they were going to follow Jesus, it was going to get hard. But on the mountain, just before they head down, they hear God's voice saying, this is my son, the beloved. You see, every step of the way through this gospel, whenever we see Jesus do something spectacular, conquer demons, or raise people from the dead, or heal the sick, there's some affirmation that he's the son of God. And in this moment, as Jesus speaks of the cost of following him, as he takes his steps towards Jerusalem and towards the cross, there's that same affirmation. This is the Son of God. God is with the, with the disciples. God is with us. The word Emmanuel used at Jesus' birth means God with us. In the darkness, in the hardship, in the pain, in the fear, in the self-doubt, God is with us. Jesus walks with us and says, I hear you. I am here with you. I will suffer alongside you and I will hold your pain with mine. And he says, walk with me. This acknowledgement of the reality that life is complex and often hard is not something to shy away from. It's very much something that we do shy away from because to step into pain, to feel the ache of loss and fear is terrifying. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, really follow me, then we will confront demons together. We will walk into the depths of hell and I will be with you. The cost of following Jesus is not just an over-spiritualization of feeling like you're at odds with culture. And are we really? That's a conversation that we need to have. The cost is real and it is significant. It is an interpersonal cost, yes, but so much more so the cost is deeply personal. It's a call to know who we really are and whose we really are. 
The call to follow Jesus is to dig so deeply into ourselves that our demons are confronted, named, and cast out. And in that process, we learn what it means to really love our neighbors. We've been talking a lot for a while now here about living missionally, about faithful presence, about being outwardly focused. And that's important, that's great, that is a core of our mission as followers of Jesus, as the church, to love our neighbors and to invite them to follow Jesus as well. But we need to do our own work in order to love our neighbors. Because when we do that, when we own our stuff and know that we are beloved, we identify and recognize our sins and our weak spots, and we begin to work through them. We expose our darkness to the light in order to disarm it. And in that, we learn to see our neighbors more kindly as beloved. When we show our own demons that we are gracious with ourselves, we can be so much more gracious with everyone around us. When we follow Jesus, when we're following him to our neighbors, and when we follow him to our neighbors, we meet Jesus there as well. I am a firm believer that outward-focused mission and our own faith growth go hand in hand. We meet Jesus in the face of our neighbors. And this all connects with the question of if we have followed Jesus into the depths of our own hearts. When we are gracious with ourselves, we are gracious with others. When we know our limits and really own our doubts and our failures and our glories and our hopes and our dreams, our eyes are opened to the ways that Jesus has already been moving and is moving in the lives of our neighbors. And with that, we begin to see Jesus in new ways. And so as you go outwardly, as you look outwardly to your neighbors, will you allow yourselves to encounter Jesus in new ways? Will you allow yourself to be converted by somebody else? Have your conceptions of God blown apart to encounter Jesus anew? Will you take that risk in order to follow Jesus? I have one last thought and a couple questions for you as we end, and the worship team can come back up. We are people of resurrection. To follow Jesus is to courageously walk with him into the depths of pain and suffering, into the hard stuff of our lives and the lives of our neighbors, with the hope that something of life will be birthed out of that. To follow Jesus is to go to the cross and in those dark places bring light and life and to encounter Jesus in new ways, in a familiar ways made new. Throughout this whole series, we've been asking you the same two questions and I'm going to ask them again. What did you hear and how did you respond? What did you hear And how did you respond? The worship team will play for a minute or two to give you some space to process and to answer, and then we'll sing one more song to close us out. And as we end, let's pray. God, give us courage to follow you. Give us courage to name ourselves, who we are, to name each other. Thank you for the invitation to follow you. And go with us. Amen.